0: We're in the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, it looks like everybody has uh, the notes and everything, so we, sh- we are set to go, I believe. Um, let me take just a moment uh, or two to uh, kind of su- summarize where we are and update uh, for Tom and many uh, others, you know, two or three others actually as well. Uh, the book of 1 Corinthians is written uh, early to mid-50s. Uh, The city of Corinth um, was a thoroughly uh, Greco-Roman city. It was a uh, city that had a pretty bad reputation in the uh, Mediterranean world at that time, and yet, uh, despite that, in Acts 18, Paul planted a church there on his second missionary journey. He is uh, on his third missionary journey, uh, stationed in Ephesus, which is across the Uh, the sea there, uh, and the Aegean Sea, and he is, uh, that's kind of his home base, and he gets this letter from the church in Corinth, and uh, the response to that letter is what's in front of you now, what we call First Corinthians. Paul had a passion for this church, Uh, maybe that's not the right word, he did have a passion for anyone that was interested in truth uh, of Christ, but a uh, real interest in his church. Uh, as far as we know, he made three visits to it. He wrote four letters. Two of the letters are canonical. That is, uh, they uh, uh, are considered inspired. Uh, this letter is uh, one of them, I think, my, it's my own opinion, but I think it's probably one of the most relevant uh, books of the New Testament. And I say that simply because it, it reflects um, a little church struggling with what it means to represent Christ in a thoroughly pagan world. Um, the, the, the Greco-Roman world, uh, in many ways, uh, is very, was very similar to our world today. And it, um, it, that's why I think it's so relevant and so purposeful. Jim has one, but I don't think Mark does. Oh, sorry. So that's one of the reasons why I love to teach this. So that's a quick introduction to the book, and uh, the the section we're in now, which is really the first four chapters, Paul is dealing with something that he heard from this group of people that came to visit him in Ephesus, and which gave him the letter and and caused him to write 1 Corinthians. And he heard from one of the house churches, the one associated with Chloe, uh, and that's mentioned there in, uh, in verse uh, 11 of chapter 1. That the church is divided. That the church has cliques in it. That the church is not unified at all. And he identifies the four divisions, which I won't go through again. But what he does then is he responds to it by saying, you know, these divisions result from two things. First, you guys misunderstand the message of the gospel. You, you don't understand it. And I want to refresh your memories on what it is. We're right in the middle of that. And second, he says, you misunderstand the role of ministers, the role of those who've taught you. You're elevating them. You shouldn't do that. And so this is where we're at. And that's a very relevant thing for us today because what unifies us is not this idea, or this person, or this particular teaching, it's Jesus and Christ crucified. That's what unifies us. And second, if you elevate me, knock it off. If you elevate your pastor, knock it off. You don't elevate people, you elevate Christ. And what he's going to do, we won't get to that today, but we'll get to it perhaps next week, those who teach, those who preach, those who serve are God's instruments. They're His means to an end He's already determined in your life. to so elevate Christ, not them. That's where we're at. So, the second thing I wanted to do by way of introduction was to remind you of something. And I think I told you I'm going to do this almost every time we're together for the first seven or eight weeks what we call in the the study of the book the Corinthian problem. The Corinthian people in this series of house churches in Corinth had three issues, all of whom were wrong. One, they had a distorted view of spirituality. And I talked about that the first time we were here. I talked about it last time. They focused on experience. They focused on the showy, extravagant things that elevated them instead of what really is important in spirituality which is yielding to Christ and serving others. Second, and this comes from their background, they were dualists. They said the material world including the physical body is evil, the spiritual world including the spirit is good. So therefore they had enormous struggles with the bodily resurrection of Christ, that doctrine. They couldn't imagine that God would resurrect the evil body. Paul's going to have to correct that, and that has a lot of issues with them. They thought that they could do whatever they wanted because God was going to destroy their bodies. And that was, of course, something that Paul will address immediately in chapter 5. Finally, now this is a doctrinal term, but I nonetheless will use it. They had what is often called a realized eschatology. They thought they were living in the kingdom, they thought the kingdom had already come, and that they were reigning and ruling with Christ. Can you do whatever they wanted? Christ is going—excuse uh, me. Paul is going to correct every one of those. He's going to reorient their thinking about spirituality. He's going to challenge them with the idea that dualism is wrong. The body is good. It has a sinful orientation to it because of Adam but God's going to deal with that and will resurrect the body. The body's important to God. And thirdly, he's going to correct their view. You aren't living in the kingdom. The kingdom's yet future. So he's in the middle of chapter, uh, near the end of chapter one is where we left off last time. And I want to begin with verse 30. Now remember something. (laughs) I keep saying that. I'm going to write this on the board. And Beck's here, and he's given me authority to fill this board. All kinds of truth. I told you last week that Paul is using this word, which the Greek word is Sophia, wisdom. We saw that in the first verses. The The essence of wisdom is Christ crucified. Paul Paul uses a word that they were very familiar with. He says to them in the earlier parts of this chapter that we studied last week I came to you with wisdom but not the wisdom of this world. I didn't come to you with the wisdom that Sophia that you're used to from all of your teachers. The core of my teaching of God's wisdom is Christ crucified. Now that, you gotta, whenever you read, in the book of Corinthians, whenever you read the word wisdom, think of, for Paul, the center of that is Christ crucified. God's wisdom is Christ crucified. Not Plato, not Aristotle, not Socrates, not Archimedes, not Heraclitus, they're all great Greek philosophers. But it is the message of Christ crucified. Now, does that make sense? Are you with me? Is everybody tracking with me? Well, the answer to that is either yes or you have no. I mean, there's there's no middle ground. You either are with me or you're not with me. I'm with you, Jeff. Okay, good. All right. <laughs> okay. That's good. And what he is just ending in this section, kind of in the middle of it, but. In terms of God's wisdom, what he did in Christ, and what he did in the message which Paul preached, verse 30, chapter 1, but His by his doing, you are in Christ, in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. See the phrase? And righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. That just as it is written... Let no man who, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Let me read that again. Verse 31. That just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Quoting there from Jeremiah. All right, now let's take this apart for a minute. Um, What did I just summarize? That one of the real problems. One of the real issues in the Corinthian church was their view of spirituality. They believed that spirituality. Do you, you know, when I use that word spirituality, do you is that a familiar word to you, or am I using a word? I mean, some of you are looking at me like I am speaking in German or something. Lay it out. All right. I mean, spirituality is a, it's a very important New Testament word. It's in Greek, it's pneumatikon, but It's it's the idea of, okay, what does your walk with God look like? What does your life look like? What does the spiritual life, what does the life of the Spirit, what does walking by the Spirit, what does walking with God look like? That's spirituality. Does that resonate now? Show it with me? As I said earlier, and we saw it right at the beginning of the book, we're going to see it throughout the book. They identified, well, another way to put it, they emphasized the showy, extravagant, experiential—the showy, extravagant use of spiritual gifts—the things that drew attention to them as spirituality. Who's the spiritual person? The one who speaks a lot in tongues. Now I'm using that as an example because he he brings that up. If any of you are from a Pentecostal background, I'm not singling you out. That's just something that's very important in this book. Oh, I can speak in I speak in tongues more than you do. I'm more spiritual. I, I have 16 words of prophecy. You only have two. I'm more spiritual. I have words of knowledge from God that so exceed anything you, I'm obviously more spiritual. See what they're doing? They're focusing on things that God has done in their life and they're elevating themselves. Here is a verse. By, by here, I mean verse 30. is a verse that shows the beginning point of spirituality of the walk with God is wisdom, the wisdom that comes from God, which is centered in Christ Jesus and his work. Wisdom, in Paul's language, in 1 Corinthians, is Christ crucified. Not what Plato says, not what Aristotle lays out, not what Heraclitus detailed. It's Christ crucified. And from that wisdom comes, now notice those three words, Justification, sanctification, redemption. There are three words that have a lot to do with the spiritual life. God's wisdom is the source and the content of spirituality. Now, that last sentence I just uttered, does that make sense? I don't know if I can. Um, God's wisdom is the source and the content of real spirituality. Yeah, something like that, I <laughs> Now, Again, let's look at those words. Justification, sanctification, redemption. <laughs> there are three very important words that have a lot to do with our salvation, and a lot to do with who we are in Christ. Let's take them apart. Righteousness, justification. Righteousness, your standing in Christ. That comes as a result of Christ crucified, the source of wisdom. Sanctification is the process of becoming holy. Righteousness is who you are. Sanctification is the process God uses to bring your life into conformity with Him be transformed, in, transformed into the image of Christ and redemption redemption is it's a little more difficult word you've heard it maybe you don't don't know much about it but redemption needs to purchase uh, to redeem something like in a marketplace in say Corinth you go down and you redeem an animal uh, that's uh, been chained you bought that animal you purchase it's now yours so to be redeemed by God means you've been purchased. You've been bought. You belong to him. You've been redeemed from sin to Christ. Notice how he said it at the beginning of verse 30. You who are in Christ Jesus, that's that circle, that sphere of blessing, where you find righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. What do you
1: I just uh, you talk about Christ crucified, right? But but doesn't really mean not the act of his crucifixion, but why he was crucified and the intent of that was to forgive, for have all of our sins forgiven. He took our sins and and died for us. That's right. Therefore, we were not maybe not cleansed. Maybe that's not the
0: right word, but um, we were forgiven. Well, forgiven and cleansed. When we put our faith in Jesus, that's exactly right, word. Forgiven, cleansed, all of those words fit. Now, now you're right. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you, you said what you said. The phrase Christ crucified, which is the source and content of God's wisdom, is all that you just said. It's Jesus going to the cross. It's dying. It's all that was accomplished at the cross. It's all that God did in putting the sins of the world. That's all that we've talked about in the class. It's all summarized in the phrase, Christ crucified. You're absolutely right. Okay, that's just refreshing, and you're clarifying. You got it. Okay? Now, I just, I really, because I'm really glad you did that. Because Christ crucified is, it's referring to all that's involved in Christ's crucifixion and it's finished work. Oh, please, absolutely.
2: I mean, obviously, there's wisdom in God's plan that resulted in these three outcomes. But as he's writing here, is is Paul talking about, also talking about our reaction or response to that? I mean, it's evident that evidence resides over here in what God did. Is there some, some indication that we should be doing something with that, or is that, or is it, without some action on my part, it's not appropriate
0: so. right. right. Yes. And, I mean, you're, you're right. In, if I can put it in the context of 1 of, of, of Corinthians, what Paul has uh, what Paul has already been doing in verse 26, 27, 28, 29, he's asking him to reflect on, okay, what's happened to you there, in, you Corinthians? <coughs> like, what, what has mm-hmm. occurred to you? Did you get the Spirit? Did your... Faith, did that result from human wisdom, or did that result from you putting your faith in Christ and all of that's involved in Christ crucified? So, I mean, yes, but in terms of the context of 1 Corinthians, he is assuming they have already made that decision, responding to the message of Christ crucified. He's reminding them. But in terms of every human being, when you're presented with the evidence, as to use your word, it does beg a response. What are you going to do with this truth? It's that old question, what are you going to do with Jesus? But in terms of what he's doing here in 1 Corinthians, he's closing out this section, okay, you Corinthians, I want you to reflect on the role of God's wisdom in your life so far. Are you where you are because of human wisdom and human effort and human boasting? Or because of what Jesus has done? which is the essence of God's wisdom. Did your own effort and your own human philosophers produce righteousness, sanctification, and redemption in your life? Or did Christ do that? That's what he's doing in terms of the context of the book.
1: Is, isn't that the, the three that he mentioned earlier? Apollo and... Pa-
0: Paulus, Cephas, Paul himself, yeah. So
1: they were... They were worshiping
0: them? Well, I don't think worshiping them would be the right word, uh, Woody. But it's, um, if I use the word a click, does that word, you know, sure. it's obviously a, a, a common word, but a click, it means within the Corinthian church, or probably house churches, several of them, they were kind of divided and they were saying, you know, I. I had been so influenced by Apollos, that great Alexandrian teacher. I really follow him. Oh, Paul! I, Stephanus would say I I was baptized by Paul. I, I kind of really like Paul more than Apollos. Then you had another group, probably some Jews in the in the little churches there at Corinth. Well, we are followers of Peter. Cephas. He was the most important one for in our lives. And then you had this super elite group that said, oh, we're, we all follow Jesus. You know, that kind of thing. But the, we don't know exactly what it was that drew them. But it's... I kidded my wife on this. One time we were having a discussion and I don't even remember what it was about, but um, we were talking about some particular issue and she says, well, Jim, I hear what you're saying, but Chuck Swindoll said... <laughs> so she was elevating Chuck over her husband. all I'm, I'm kidding a little bit. But it's... Paul is saying something to the Corinthians that I think is very relevant to us in 2013 sometimes we follow an individual instead of following Jesus what he's going to tell us later on starting uh, in in chapter 3 is don't forget people this is Paul speaking to the Corinthians, Apollos and Paul and Peter are just ministers of God, they're his instruments don 't elevate them over jesus so Jim, that's what he's going to say to them
3: and, and as far as like many of us attend church regularly, we can elevate the pastor over over this word and what it says in Christ, and that we should always be a little bit mindful or mindful of the the need to read this word and to put it in perspective because our pastor is a dispenser of this word, and we should measure it against. The Bible, not to be critical, but just to understand what the Word says and be able to absorb what the pastor's saying in context.
0: Yes, yes. I'm, I mean, the way you said it, it and is left good. for
1: ourselves, we all have different interpretations. Just reading the black on the white, you know. And that's why, you know, the study is it brings out, you know, all of our interpretations and we can try to correct the ones
0: that are wrong. Right, right. So the pastor also... Your pastor, your pastor of your respective churches, and this is, I'm putting it the way it's put in one of the pastoral epistles. Look at your pastor as a gift from God who has been given to you to instruct, to teach, to exhort, to admonish. They're all new testament words but to help you understand god's word and apply god's word because as we see all over the place god's word is the key to transformation it is the most important means god uses to transform your life if it's inspired by the spirit and we're going to study coming up in verse six through sixteen the role of the Spirit in our lives. Then the Spirit takes his word and changes us through it. So if you never spend time in the God's Word, and you never sit under someone who has studied God's Word, then you will not grow through God's Word. It's not going to happen.
1: A process. The process. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Exactly what And so we are to look at our pastors and look look at our pastor teachers as gifts from God to help us understand his word and uh, to admonish and exhort us to be transformed as a result of it. Um, And it's over and over and over again. Don't elevate men over Jesus. Look at your pastors as a gift. Now, if I can be so bold, don't elevate me. Look at me as just a gift from God to help you grow that's the only if you stop there put a period in that sentence I'm absolutely thrilled if you don't even remember my name I don't care you're just learning to understand God's word so that you apply it and it transforms you Daryl I was just going to add that we are to
1: follow you or our pastor as you follow
0: Christ right that's 1 Corinthians 11 1 and that's exactly right And um, you have to always be very, very careful because if you see that I'm not following Christ, don't follow me anymore. You understand what I just said? Oh, you're looking at me is. It, I mean, if if you know something comes out in the paper tomorrow, God willing, it won't, because I don't have anything to hide. But something comes out tomorrow in the newspaper that I'm not a man of integrity, that I've um, um, hoodwinked the school I used to serve out of a million dollars or some horrible thing like that. Stop following me. Don't come to this class anymore. But God, that's not going to happen. As far as I don't think I've done anything that would cause. Mm-hmm the Omaha World Herald pay attention to anything I do but I'm saying so and Paul says that you know and it's actually the Greek word is mimic mimic me as I mimic Christ because Paul's saying I am following Jesus and I am I am seeking to proclaim as he says in chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 I'm seeking to proclaim and teach God's word to you and as long as I do that follow me but the moment I stop doing that you see, one of the dangers, and I'm going to go down a quick bunny trail here, but one of the dangers of following just a person—I'm going to use a 21st-century word—that that becomes cultish, becomes like a cult, and that person then speaks. That and what, in effect, starts to happen is that person, in effect, speaks for anything that person said. It's like God speaking. I mean, you just think of some of the extraordinary examples, bizarre examples, extreme examples of, of cults that have been formed by one person who actually, that, and this is what Paul is absolutely warning them, don't let that person take the place of Jesus Christ. Isn't that
2: what he was writing the church Maria, Paul said, search the scriptures daily to be
0: sure that what I was... Exactly. Sometimes we, we hear of Sunday school classes in a church called the Bereans. And what that means is it's a, it's a wonderful compliment to those people because Berea is up in the northern part of Macedonia, north of Greece. And what the Bereans did, Paul would teach them. And you know what they did? They would go home, pull out the scriptures and say, now Paul was referring, is this really what this means? That's good. That's really good. To go home and reread, think about it, study it, yes. And it confirms in your heart this is what the Holy Spirit inspired.
3: Jim, if we see a friend or who's a Christian friend or uh, even someone like yourself, I mean, if in fact we saw an error in, in a way, if we truly love that person, wouldn't we uh, just ask them about? that particular person. Oh, so, yeah. Well, I think we
0: have that responsibility as well as that freedom to To, do
3: that. to encourage them and help right. them uh, in the way right. they should go. Because no one is
0: perfect. Yeah. Everyone has shortcomings. That's right.
3: Well, because everyone
1: does have shortcomings, uh, if there was something that I perceived where you weren't following Christ to throw the baby out with the bathwater, hmm. so to speak, you're not saying that. No, not at all. But to say then that we shouldn't come to this class because we heard that you told, you provided
0: misinformation to someone yeah. else. Yeah. That's I, I, that's why I used the example of fraud or right. something yeah. like that, that's so extreme. But yeah. you're right. I mean, and Paul did, you know, we have some examples where Paul maybe overreacted, uh, like in some things with Barnabas, but God still. Um, God still uses and forgives, you know, because we're all, nobody in this table, around this table is perfect, including me, or most importantly me. But the the reason, I mean, I'll just be very transparent here. The reason I do classes like this, and I have four of them, is I believe that God's word is the most important thing in your life. I mean, I'm, I mean, because I'm assuming you have a relationship with Jesus, so given that, that this is the most important, and if it gives an opportunity for you to understand portions of God's Word and grow through it. that word sanctification, the process of God transforming you. And some of you, I've known you now for a couple of years. Uh, Because we've had the class now of, I guess, what, our third year or something like that. And, I mean, I've seen the Lord use his word in your life. You are growing. There has been evidence of growth, And that is what is encouraging to the Apostle Paul again and again and again and again in his writings. Let's move to chapter 2. Now, he's continuing. He's asking them to reflect. Them meaning the Corinthians. To reflect on what God has done. Now he moves from what he preached to him as a preacher. And he wants them to reflect on him. How did God use him when he was with them? When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's driving them back to the message of God's wisdom. And I was with you. When I was with you, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Verse 5 is the intended result that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Now when Paul is talking in verse 1, you see the phrase superiority of speech. Middle of verse 4, persuasive words of wisdom will you trust me with this? They are the phrases that were used of the great philosophers and great teachers of the Greco-Roman world. Paul is saying to them, and they would have understood that, I'm not like them. They would travel all through the Greco-Roman world and they would rent a hall and you would go in you would pay money a uh, uh, denarius or something you would go in and you would hear them for a couple of hours 2 3 hours sometimes 4 and they were eloquent eloquent speakers they were the the oratorical rhetorical they were they were both professions oratory and, and rhetoric you could go to school and learn those they were masters in that
1: were they philosophers
0: most of them were philosophers. And you would come and you would listen to them. And I mean they were professional speakers. When I say all that we don't have anything quite like that today, maybe some of you will occasionally go to hear a lecture or something like that. And whether you pay for it or not isn't the point. Paul says that's not the way I was. I and he's using those phrases, superiority of speech, verse one, middle of verse four, persuasive words of wisdom. They're the words, they're phrases. I hope you can trust me with that. But they're phrases that were used of the great philosophers of the day. Paul says, I'm not like that. As a matter of fact, when I came to you, I came to you in weakness, with fear and trembling. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean Paul had a speech impediment? Does that mean Paul, because Paul was on the Sanhedrin, he was a Pharisee. He studied under Gamaliel II. He probably was one of the most well-educated people of the first century. But you see, he is teaching, he is preaching, he is proclaiming a message. And it's a message that he understands only God changes a person's heart. I don't do that. So when he says weakness, he's not saying that I was a weak, shriveled up old man standing up there shaking in my boots. That's not what he means. These words are words of utter and absolute dependence on God because his message is a message of utter and absolute dependence on God for salvation. He is contrasting the Greco-Roman philosophers and the words and phrases that were so common in describing them in contrast to what he did. I don't think, and this is an original thought with me, Paul is not making a comment on his style or his effectiveness. He's talking about his demeanor as he proclaimed the truth. Not out of pride, not out of exaltation of my gifts, but in utter dependence on God. I didn't come to you in strength, I came in weakness, because I'm proclaiming an eternally significant message. And for it to have an effect, I have to be weak in my own strength, because I'm utterly dependent on Him. Fear and trembling in the sense that, Lord, help me to be able to proclaim what is true and the effect will come through your spirit. That's what he means.
1: He was like more humble.
0: Very humble. He
1: wasn't up there doing his own heart. That's right.
0: And because it, 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 again, it isn't a statement of his gifts or his effectiveness. This is a statement of his dependency.
3: Yeah.
0: So that when someone comes to faith, end of verse 4, it's in the spirit of and power of God he
1: probably wasn't eloquent at
0: all I don't know about that heart, well that I, I agree with you but I'm not sure we, can, we would say he wasn't eloquent although I, I don't know that for sure but I mean if, if anyone can write the way he writes there's an eloquence about him there's brilliance about him but he's making a statement and this is what I hope you're, you're seeing this He's making a statement about his dependency on God, not the dependency on his own gifts and strength. He's a messenger, not the source. Exactly. exactly. Because most of the, those philosophers were talking about them exactly. as the source of the wisdom. Yeah, exactly. Is that, is that right? Yeah. They're oh, elevated. Oh, Look how great I am. I'm such an eloquent speaker. I, I, I know everything. Exactly, it. exactly. And Paul, and that's why Paul is He's contrasting himself with what they were used to. Yeah. And, and he, he's saying, hey, You remember when I came to you, this is the way I was. Yeah. And he's he, as as he started with verse, uh, verse 26, and he goes on through verse 5 where we are now, he is asking the Corinthians to reflect on the ministry of the gospel in their lives, and Paul as a deliverer of that message. And they would presumably this is what he expected, they would look at each other and say you know he's right. He's right, that's the way he was. I told you this uh, before when I first started in in ministry way back in a long time ago in in Pennsylvania where I'm from and where I was ordained and all that, but my mentor said to me something that, uh, he said a lot to me but a lot of it I forgot, but this I remembered. He said to me, Jim, you will learn. Your job is not to change people. That's God's business. Just be faithful in what He's asking you to do. And that's a, that's a honestly, that's a very liberating thought, honestly. But it's also it's, it's, it's the vital center of what it means to be a messenger. I mean, my resp- and, and, and the freeing part of it for me is my job isn't to change any of you. If none of you change. If none of you are transformed, that's not my fault. If I am being faithful in teaching what God's Word says to you. the change is up to the Lord. And that's why those, those words, he's going to use those words a lot. It's a demonstration, of verse 4, demonstration of the Spirit and of the power of God. And they would have sat back and said, you know, I remember that. So that the end result is this is verse 5. This is the end result. It's a purpose statement. It's a purpose clause. Your faith does not rest in the wisdom of men. It rests in the power of God. Paul will say again and again and again, it's all of God. God does it all. I am just the messenger. Now, again, even for you and me today, um, in our very technologically sophisticated age and all of that, it is always important for us to come back to the simplicity of the message. This is not a complicated message. Christ crucified in awe is what he reminded us, and it's all that's involved in that. Christ crucified is not a complicated message. Little children can respond to it, as well as people with PhDs very poor people, as well as very wealthy people. The message is the same. And Paul is reminding the Corinthians, reflect on your life, what's happened in your life. Did it come from the wisdom of men? You're dividing yourselves into these cliques. You're forgetting the simplicity of the message. Those men didn't have anything to do with your salvation. They were just the messengers. Your salvation demonstrates the Holy Spirit and power of God. All right.
2: So, so doctor, should Please. That, should that give us confidence you know, as we share yeah. truth, yes. knowing that we don't have to be persuasive that yes. it really is the Holy Spirit that mm-hmm. takes what we say Somehow. Yes,
1: absolutely.
2: I mean, so many, I, I feel so inadequate so many times when you know I'm in a conversation with someone I gotta use the right words and I gotta talk about
1: the right things. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: Absolutely, Jim. And I, you know, I would encourage you. To, and I've done this for many, 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 many years. I would encourage you: you get into a conversation, just pray it was short, straight hour of prayer. Lord, help me to have the right words, and then trust Him with the result. You, you know what I mean by that? If yeah. if you pray and you say, "Lord, I don't exactly help me to have the right words," and then engage in the conversation, trust the Lord with the results. I mean, I don't think that's a freeing, liberating way of of living. But it's also, I think, the right. It's it's what I think Paul is saying: weakness, fear, and trembling. I am I am communicating something, the truth about God and His Word and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all that He did. Which, for many people, he's gonna. He said to us last week when we studied it in chapter one twenty two and following. Some people think it's ridiculous. Some people regard as the most offensive <clears throat> nonsense they've ever heard. Some of this it's all about your repulsive, silly, stupid stuff. Understand all that. Is
2: but there, still the truth. Is there a possibility when Paul talks about spirit and power here that in some ways the demonstration of that he's talking about his own changed life?
0: Of course he is. I, I, well, I think he would exemplify that, absolutely. Because if anybody before Damascus rode if anybody exhibited human wisdom, human capability, human self-elevation, was Paul. He tells us that in, in Philippians. He gives a reti- he gives his CV there. He gives his vita. He gives his resume of all that he did. And, you, and if you if you go back to that look at but he uses the word but all of that I have considered to be. And the word he uses there is human excrement for Christ because it doesn't matter when it comes and that doesn't it, he's not saying that isn't important because God used all that preparation but in terms of salvation utterly meaningless has nothing to do with salvation and um, that's something I've really had to learn in my years of ministry uh, what my mentor told me I didn't get it at first But it really is. My job is to be faithful in studying, spending as much time as I possibly can really studying God's Word and then trusting Him with the results of of what I share. Chapter 2, verse 6. In your notes. Bottom of page uh, 4, and we'll go over um, to the next page, but I... I want to break this apart. Chapter 2, verse 6, and it will go on through the end of the chapter. This is one of the most important passages, in in my view anyway, one of the most important passages in, in all of the Bible, on the role of the Holy Spirit in your life. In the role of the Holy Spirit in your life, as he connects with his word in your life. Okay, he has summarized for us that the vital center of God's wisdom is Christ crucified, all that that involves. He's asked the Corinthians to reflect on your own life. Isn't that true? Now, verse six through uh, the end of the chapter of chapter two, he comes back to the idea of wisdom, and he connects the idea of wisdom with the Holy Spirit okay and he's saying that this wisdom is sourced in and revealed by God's Spirit let me read verses 6 through 9 and we'll take that apart now he's continuing his discussion about his ministry among them but now he's broadening it from how he proclaimed the message in utter and total dependence on God, trusting in his power and his spirit, back to the content of the message. Yet, we do speak wisdom. There's our word again. Keep seeing it again and again. Among those who mature wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are passing away. Now let's stop for just a moment. Um, In A.D. 53 or so, when they would have first read this, a wisdom not of this age. How would they process that? Not of this age, in the sense of the Greco-Roman age, the age of power, the age of Caesar, the age of the great Greco-Roman philosophers nor of the rulers of this age. Well, in the first century, that would have been, uh, you know, the great Caesars, Caesar Augustus, Tiberius, Titus, Nero. They're passing away. 21st century. The century, in case you didn't remember that, in which you live, The wisdom of this age. or the rulers of this age, and by the way, that word "rulers" does not necessarily mean political rulers. Who are the rulers and cultural trendsetters and powerful people—the people we look to—we uh, look too often for wisdom and guidance and direction. That was not a rhetorical question. Pardon me. Hollywood people, athletes, musicians, actors. There you go, athletes. That's great. You have thought this before, athletes, I'm misguided. musicians, and actors. Yeah. Um, Buffett, Warren Buffett. Yeah. Okay, Warren Buffett. Yeah. I mean the you know the wealthy and powerful financial sages of our of our era. Facebook. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, increasingly. That's, Mark, that's very, very good. Increasingly, the, um, the social networking um, and the sources of information. Did you see the founder of Amazon just bought the Washington Post? I don't know if you read things like that. That is an incredibly significant piece of news. Because I guarantee you, I mean, he, Jeff Jeffries is a very forward-thinking, technologically sophisticated guy. He's going to turn the Washington Post. That great brand name of journalism, probably, that's, I imagine that's why he spent $250 million for it. He wants to turn it into the paradigm of what this new technology can do with news. So he's going
3: to change that news, actually. Oh, the oh yeah. True. I mean, it's,
0: right. I, I really... You know, he's worth 25 billion dollars. he bought that out of his own fortune. You watch in the next decade what he does with the Washington Post because he wants to he wants to channel how you get information and he wants you to pay for it. He's going to craft ways for you to get the information the way you can. and I'm saying all that because we have democrat this is an original phrase with me, but we have democratized wisdom in our culture. Everybody can. I can access it with this stupid thing. But Paul is saying in the 21st century this is not the source of wisdom. The trendsetters and cultural trendsetters and culture makers of your age they're not talking about God's wisdom. The Dr. Phil's the Dr. Oz, the Oprah, the Ellen DeGeneres of this age, they're not teaching God's wisdom. You may think they're saying something good, but that's not the kind of wisdom to speak. Verse 7 we speak God's wisdom. Now, uses a word that's at first troubling because it doesn't make sense in a mystery. See that word? Now the problem with that word in English is what they did many 2,000 years ago when they translated it well it's not 2,000 years ago uh, 700 years ago when they translated it in English they just took letter for letter from the Greek into the English it's musterion in Greek they just brought it into English so it doesn't help us because when you see the word mystery today, you think of Agatha Christie or James Patterson or the absolutely greatest television program ever made, Columbo.
1: Yeah, did you ever see those?
0: Yeah. I, I used to love those mysteries. I mean, five seconds after the crime was committed, Columbo knew who did it. it just a, By the way, just another question, that it. 's great stuff. That has nothing to do with this work. The word mystery means something that was previously hidden is now revealed. Now, think for me, with me just a minute. What was hidden that Paul is now revealing? Well, all of the prophecies of the Old Testament about Jesus, about the Christ, about the Messiah. That's what Paul's doing. He's revealing those hidden truths. Because Paul lived on this side of the cross, like you and I do. We have a much greater ease in going back into the Old Testament, seeing those 537 prophecies about Jesus fulfilled. And when it tells us that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, I can tell you what he's doing. He's going back and looking at all the Old Testament prophecies and saying Jesus. Well, see, here's from Jesus. Remember? Psalm 22 says, so hanging on a cross. See? He hung in a cross. Well, anyway. I'm hoping you're getting it. You're following what I'm saying. A mystery, hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. A wisdom which none of the rulers of this age have understood. For if they'd understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they, if Rome would have understood the prophecies, they wouldn't have been a complicit in the execution of Christ. But Paul is saying, and there's a lot he's saying there, they were the instruments God was using to accomplish his plan. And then he makes, quoting from Isaiah 64 and 65, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. But he says, listen, guys. Things which eye has not seen, ears not heard, which has not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. You have no idea, Paul, in effect, is saying, you have no idea all that God has planned for you. You can't even hardly, and you know I've I've often used it. Do you know what he's saying there? Listen, you and I don't have a category for eternity. I mean, we can utter the word, but we really don't have a category for eternity. I remember when I may have told you. I remember when my, my my daughter was a little girl. She was about four or something. Maybe five. I don't remember, but she was real little. And one night, I mean, I always told my kids a story when they would go to bed and and we would talk about things. And I always tried to work in something spiritual. Whatever we were doing, whatever story I was telling her, we got into a discussion about heaven. And I mean, you know, how how can you talk to heaven about a four-year-old? You know, I was like, oh, goodness. Because she was asking me about it. And so, you know, I said, well, honey, it's when we're going to go to be with Jesus and we are going to live with him forever. And I could just see her little mind. And she's like, okay, daddy. Okay. Then when do I come back? <laughs> and then no, no, honey. Uh, uh, okay, let me say it again. <laughs> we're gonna go to be with Jesus, and we're gonna be with Him forever. And you, know, it, just, it just, she had absolutely no way of understanding what forever meant. Her world was her room with her stuffed animals and you know, that kind of thing, and she just couldn't conceive. I mean, that's what Paul's saying. You have no idea idea what God has for you. You have no category to process it. Your ears, your eyes, whatever you can possibly conceive in your mind, all that God has prepared for those who are. So Paul, you know, Paul is saying to look, we came to you, we came to you preaching and proclaiming God's wisdom. We're unpacking the mystery. We're unpacking what was hidden. And now revealed. And it's only the start. All right. Great place to end because I can't get into the next section. Because the next section is well, then, how in the world can we understand this? How can we grasp all this? Answer through the Spirit. So we'll deal with that next. It's a great section. If you have time, I'd like you to read 10 through 16, if you have time. And if you have a little more time, read it twice. And if you have an abundance of time, read it three times. This is honestly, and if, you, if it's all possible for you to be here next week, be here, because it is one of the most cherished portions of Scripture. It helps you to understand Every time you open God's Word, and every time you study it, every time you come to this class, what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life—this is what it's explained for. And,
1: and, and you mean that we'll actually be able to walk out of this room and go out there and practice it? Is that what you're saying? Is it? I just feel like this is just like a little uh, place where we meet and we learn how to how to live and behave and be a Christian and. And then we go out there, I and mean, it's so hard to apply, yes. and be conscious of it at all times. Yeah.
0: Well, I don't know if I can answer the question exactly the way you phrased it in the affirmative, <laughs> but it is a part of the process of enabling you to be able to do that. It really is. It's a a great, I mean, I I hope, I I love to teach this particular chapter because it really is a very, very, very important chapter. Are
1: you talking about verse 10 through
0: 16? Yes, I am. If you can do that, that'd be great. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get, uh, get going. Lord, thanks for our time around the Word of God today, and thank you for your Spirit who does teach us, who does instruct us, who does work in our hearts. Paul reminded us that um, when he was with the Corinthians, um, he was in utter dependence on you so that your spirit and your power would accomplish what you wanted in the lives of those people. And that's the same today, uh, roughly 2,000 years later. Every time God's word is opened, every time it's preached or taught, uh, it's the power and the spirit of God that's at work. Anyone like myself or pastors in the churches or the guys that they go to, churches they guys go to, they're just the instruments that you use to accomplish your work in the lives of people. We want to be faithful. I certainly want to be faithful in what you asked me to do, but we leave that change and transformation to you. Your word is faithful. Isaiah says it never returns void. We always trust that it will do its work. And as Jim reminded us, too, even when we have opportunities to talk to people about truth, we trust you for the words that you will give us, and we'll trust you, too, then with the results. So thank you. Give these guys courage. Give them a a stamina. Give them a a special enablement in all that they do and say. They're busy. They have lots of different responsibilities. But in in all that they do, Lord, help them to represent you well. In Christ's name. See you next week. Thank you, Jim.